Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it is coming right up to 4 o'clock in about oh, 15 seconds time. Start early today. Thanks, Chris. Today we'll be doing a wrap-ups of some of the issues that have been covered through the year. It's the penultimate program today, last one next week. First we'll be hearing from Cathy Kelly, who's a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, with a focus on the Middle East and the US war machine. Then Peter Murphy, human rights and trade union activist, focusing on the Philippines, Zimbabwe, and Timor-Leste. And finally, Dr Tim Anderson, recently in Cuba, but also talking about the new far-right president in Brazil. And of course, let's start off with Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane, less than when the world's big polluters are meeting under a black cloud in Poland, sponsored by Good Clean Coal, to save the world from itself. Ag from good, clean coal. Unfortunately, with the US of the UN of the US of the world absent because its commander-in-chief, Donald Trump, or the poor, knows it doesn't need saving because there's nothing to be saved from. Although Donald has applied to build a levee wall to protect one of his Scottish golf links from rising sea levels, so there must be climate change in some countries, but not in others, certainly not in the US of, because he told us the US of has the cleanest air ever, ever. And warmists like David Attenborough preach fake news, like act urgently or that's it, burnout will all be deep fried. Shame, David, shame, stick to what you know. And thankfully, True Blue Aussie doesn't have to do anything because by doing nothing about, not doing nothing like not continuing the status quo, we'll meet our targets. Must say I wouldn't mind an explanation of that one, but anyway, and doing something, the Adani the Planet coal mine, whose True Blue Aussie big supremo Lucas Durr, says it's time the demonising, myth-making and political, political gains stop. Start debating the facts, not half-truths, myths and deceptions. And unlike the demonisers, an altruistic Indian fossil has but one concern in the whole world, to provide jobs for the people of northern Trublawasi. Oh, how poor Adani the planet has been so misjudged. And does half-truths mean it will only be half the pollution? And how responsible, how irresponsible, sorry, all those mere children storming the streets, preventing the economy going about its business in their interests. Students whom all the responsible people know should have been in their classrooms, fed the warmest rubbish that the old men, mostly men in suits, are creating a bit of a problem their generation will suffer. As if, as if people like Adani, the planet and all the great international resource companies would proceed apace if they thought for one second they were going to affect the world these students will inherit. As if they'd put their profits ahead of saving the planet. Come on. And anyway, many of these responsible companies have promised they'll wean themselves off fossils in as soon as 40 or 50 years. 
And as the highly respected Lord Rupert of Wapping's sin usual suspect columnist pointed out, some of the brainwashed students held signs with, wait for it, bad spelling. Now, let's clean up a few loose threads from the election which went so wrong, got it so wrong for the second time in a row, a thread like the eponymous Darren Lynchham High saying he was surprised at getting so many elected off a base of something like point something percent over candidates who got just short of a quota, which given the bloke organising for an appropriate fee, the deals to undermine what the people wanted, what they voted for, also works for Darren. It's a bit hard to understand his surprise, but he's a politician, so we have to believe him. We mentioned last week it was obvious that in many seats, traditional caring business class supporters voted not for, but against, unless the leafy suburbs of charming people got excited at the prospect of a 19-year-old student or a 72-year-old nursing home resident. But as we said, watching the loser lose is our only enjoyment on election night. Who'll ever forget? Well, of those who were around, who'll ever forget the bonus excitement of Malcolm Wage Freezer's tears in 1983. Although the current Canberra lot are shedding tears pre-poll as they also shed their MPs who are leaping off the crumbling cliff like lemmings. Good news though, big supremo scuttled them more last time has taken steps to ensure his famously united team can't do to him what he did to Malcolm Tunner Bull and what Malcolm Tunner Bull did to tiny a bit more for the bosses. Naturally, the steps taken not for any personal reasons but for the good of the country, necessitating two-thirds of the united lot to call a spill. And if we could only get it through Parliament and the selfish socialist puppets of the evil unions and the evil greens with no thought for the national interest for no more reason than anti-true blue Aussie personal ambition would oppose this most sensible move if we could only get it through that two-thirds of the electorate would be necessary to spill a sitting government, overthrow a sitting big supremo, then I'd be in with a, with a chance at the next election. Rough chance, but a chance. The unity continued when Malcolm himself popped up and said Scuttle them should stop stuffing around and call an election now. He may as well get the massacre over with. Given Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo, little Billy Shorten Ambition's popularity in the polls is lingering around minus, it says heaps for Tiny and Malcolm and Scuttle them that everyone expects little Billy will achieve his Shorten Ambition, a race to the bottom. Owen Tiny wrote an article last week, a book review actually, under the headline, Leaders Can't Dismiss Deplorables. And if anyone would know, but surely a sub-editor with a wicked sense of humour. However, the lemmings leaping doesn't uh, mean scuttle them and the team aren't getting things done, like approving a luxury resort and helicopter pad to bring in the filthy rich guests. Well, discerning travellers at the top end of the market in the company's own terms approved smack bang in the middle of World Heritage listed Tasmanian wilderness, but the only ignorant body suggesting there could be the odd bit of environmental damage are the True Blue Aussie Heritage Council, which says damage would be considerable, but what would it know? The Wilderness Society, clearly biased, the UNESCO World Heritage Body itself, 
how dare they try to tell us what to do, that's the US OBS role, and the Aboriginal Heritage Council who carry on as if they own the bloody place. But thankfully, the minister's adviser ignored all that and declared there would be no significant damage. He's obviously the real expert, and the company pointed out, there's a significant chunk of wilderness hived off for conservation's sake, and then there's a mixed-use area. And this hived-off significant chunk, thanks to the company, will now be a mixed-use area. No mix-up here. Evil Russia has been so evil, poor Donald was forced to cancel his meeting with its big supremo Vladimir put in his place for treating so aggressively Donald's very, very, very close friend, Ukrainian big supremo Petro Perish Democracy Shenko, whom the US of knows was forced to overthrow the elected government because the elected government so hated liberty, freedom and democracy, it believed being elected made it the government. And that his supporters weren't fascists, they just thought the swastika looked attractive. And poor Petro has been forced to declare martial law. And the way things are going in the US of, mostly down, down, downhill, with weak, weak men like Donald's former lawyer whose weakness and lying Donald must have overlooked, suggesting the odd connection between evil Russia and Donald, the idea of martial law must be more appealing to Donald by the day. Back here, putting stakes into the poor caring employers, C fails the workers, or sorry, fails the workers, manufacturer of train killer munitions, has decided its workers should be considered construction workers. And sadly, and it's no fault of fails the workers, the code designed that companies with government contracts must keep the evil construction unions under control means the workers will unfortunately suffer reduced wages and conditions and entitlements. And as usual, the bloody evil union is carrying on as if fails the workers would deliberately use a gimmick to slash its workers' wages and conditions and entitlements. It probably didn't even know the wages and conditions under the construction code were lower than the agreement it had with the evil union. Exactly. For all we knew, it may have had higher wages and conditions, spokesperson Rick Bloated told us. Of course, Rick, no one's blaming you. For as Rick explained, the company realised manufacturing train killer merchandise meant they were constructing something, the end product. And the union yet again displayed its intransigence by refusing to accept this most reasonable definition. And how's business going, Rick? Uh, quite well. Plenty of good government contracts, although nothing, a little bit of war wouldn't improve. Help us make a killing. <laughs> Get it? Sure, sure. Brilliant. Well, good luck with that. Notice IKEA plans to open pop-up smaller stores, although the plan has hit a bit of a small stake. Not one franchisee has yet worked out how to put the store together. Finally, Following four years of the daily celebration of some aspect of train killing, other than two referenda which unpatriotically voted not to train kill, not worth celebrating, it was refreshing in the past two days to note the mass coverage of International Day of People with Disabilities and the anniversary of Eureka on 3CR. OK, the responsible media that knows what we really need to know determined we didn't need to know, but sadly, that only shows how removed from real news this station is. Apart from 
the week that was. Good afternoon. I thought that was a bit cheeky, but I'll, I'll let that one go. That was Mr. Kevin Healy. The summer I went swimming in the summer. Yes, the summer. Summer brings swimming, summer brings picnics in the park, and summer brings the 3CR Summer Wine Fundraiser. Thanks to the support of Small Patch Wine Store in Hawthorne, we're selling 3CR Radical Radio labelled wines for only $15 a bottle. And they're even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR at those summer festivities. Call the station between 9 to 5 on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Then you can drop into our Fitzroy studios to collect before the 21st of December. Small Patch Wine Store is a 3CR supporter. El Dorado, the story of Scudiez, is the story of a fight of a small community in northern Greece against a multinational-owned gold mine project that threatens their homes and lives. A grassroots movement is fighting against the destruction of the environment caused by the extraction methods and for democratic control of the most crucial basic resources, water, air and land. It shows Greece in the era of social and economic crisis where the rights of communities and the environment collide with big business and profit. Come along to this free screening on Thursday the 6th of December at the Greek Centre, 168 Lonsdale Street, City. To book your free ticket, search Try Booking and El Dorado or go to the Greek Resistance Bulletin Facebook page. A 3CR supporter. In this wrap-up for 2018, I'm speaking with Cathy Kelly from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. And just a little of creative nonviolence. It has long-standing roots in active nonviolent resistance to US war-making. Begun in the summer of 2005, Voices draws from the experiences of those who challenged the brutal economic sanctions imposed by the US and UN against the Iraqi people between 1990 and 2003. Members of Voices led over 70 delegations to Iraq to challenge the economic sanctions and were present in Baghdad in resistance to the 2003 US military invasion. Since 2009, Voices has led delegations to Afghanistan to listen and learn from non-violent grassroots movements and to raise awareness against the negative impacts of US militarism in the region and much, much more. When I spoke to Cathy, we began with Afghanistan and I said to her, it's a country you've been visiting for many years. What are your memories of the first time you went, your expectations and the reality? Well, I suppose I expected, Jan, that there would be a great deal of privation and it surprised me, though, to realise just how severe the conditions were inside the refugee camps particularly. To realize uh, that reported by the United Nations were 28 deaths of infants because of hypothermia seemed like such a harsh, harsh and hideous harm. 
And then to see that right across from that particular refugee camp, there was a sprawling United States military base and, you know, plenty of food and clothing and fuel and water, clean water, was going into that base every day. And then, of course, also ammunition and the wherewithal to subjugate other people all throughout Afghanistan. I was also just always stunned by how altruistic and forgiving the young people I continually met were, even though almost all of them had lost somebody in their immediate family to uh, killing and attacks. So I learned a lot by um, sitting with Afghan young people and always, always enjoying them so very, very much. I never expected to... At my age, I think I must have been 55 or something when I first went to discover that some of my finest mentors in life would be a group of teenagers. And you've developed relationships with these young people over the years, some now in their 20s? The ones that I knew are now uh, approaching their 20s. You know, nobody really knows exactly when they were born, if they were born in a rural area of Afghanistan because uh, the birth dates aren't recorded very carefully. So they kind of have to guess a bit at their ages. But now um, almost all are uh, either in university or awaiting tests to try and enter a university. And, of course, if they could study outside of Afghanistan, they would vastly prefer that because the education system, as is true of the health care system and the food distribution system and the agriculture system and the construction systems, communication systems have all failed horribly. So what you're saying is their lives have, have changed over those years, but they haven't changed for the better? No, in terms of material realities, no. They're in a very precarious situation. Uh, that's in part due to drought and uh, environmental degradation, which I would lay at the door of warfare. It's certainly due to warring parties, various warlords constantly acquiring more weaponry and trying to make land grabs or satisfy greed in order to control more resources, and I would include the United States as one of those warlords. Uh, But for the young people, there aren't jobs available very often. If there are jobs, they don't pay very well. If they were to become ill or uh, even more traumatized than they already are. There's just not uh, much that can assist them. I I am impressed by permaculture efforts, especially with the very renowned Rosemary Murrow having gone over there for months at a time for each of the last several years. And, And I'm also very, very grateful for the wonderful organization of the Afghan Peace Volunteers. And I think the kinds of projects they do actually help them resolve issues related to trauma because they work together and they create community and they, they do things um, and, and they're all very interesting and, uh, and they, they know that they can feel proud of what they've done. What things uh, are they? The Street Kids. Well, the Street Kids School is a great example of a group of young people organizing to create a kind of a contract with uh, the little kids, uh, the children between the ages of uh, 7 and, say, 14, who are not in school and should be. And not that the schooling is all that great, but it's a way to be part of a community that will keep them out of the human trafficking, the worst of the drug running that recruits children or uh, prostitution that recruits the girls as they grow older. So the kids 
come to this community every Friday, and there they have lots of community support, very, very excellent tutoring by primarily university students, and they learn their own language, Dari, they, they learn how to write, they become literate, they study um, some English, they study mathematics, and they very importantly each take every week a class in nonviolence, learning how to relate without resorting to fighting and also learning about the violent ways that the world around them has been afflicted by war and environmental damage. They've become such nice young people, and as they grow older, then they're ready to take their place in the various projects the Afghan Peace Volunteers have. But they also, by coming to the school every week, are earning, if you will, rations for their family. If they participate in the school every month, their family will get cooking oil and rice and sometimes beans. And that's so, so valuable. It can mean the difference between life and death for a family. Are all of those young people, both the older ones and the younger ones, internal refugees, or do some of them actually come from Kabul? Some come from Kabul, but honestly, most of the young people I've gotten to know have come from other provinces, from Ghazni, from Maidan Wardak, Jalalabad, from Bamyan, some from Halmand. It's a mixture of youngsters, and that's very, very important to try to bring together the Hazara and the Tajik and the Pashto and the Uzbek communities because when they can be pitted against one another and have such fear of one another that they're willing to pick up arms and feel like, you know, we have to kill you or you'll kill us, then chaos ensues and it makes it very easy for exploitative outside powers to break people apart within Afghanistan. And then it's always easier to manipulate their resources and controlling interests, big financial controlling interests, will have a much easier time taking over the resources of a smaller client state, if you will, that's maybe part of a group of federated states. So I'm always hoping that my young friends can resist the temptation to join uh, some kind of an ethnic group that excludes others. And I also wouldn't want them to identify in a nationalist way, in any way that says that their country is better than others. And I would certainly say the same to the United States people. What do you believe the U.S. wants to achieve there? They've been there for so long now. The cost must have been astronomical. What do they get out of it? Well, you know, I think it probably bothers the United States generals when, for instance, British generals say that the war there has not only been a defeat, it has been a disgrace. I suppose they'd like to emerge with some sense of pride that they accomplished something, but I can't imagine that will ever, ever be plausible. I think the United States military is very beholden to major weapon companies. Those companies now hold the strings, if you will, on almost every elected official. And so if you go up against Boeing, or Raytheon, or General Dynamics, or Lockheed Martin, even if you're, you know, a United States general, uh, you'll pay a price. It's very difficult to resist the pressures and the uh, dominance of those companies that have turned us into a permanent warfare state. If you don't have a war, how are you going to sell those weapons? So I think the United States can also say to the elected representatives, 
look, there could be some extremely valuable real estate in Afghanistan. It could be that there are trillions of dollars worth of rare earth minerals and other uh, precious resources buried under the ground in Afghanistan. And do you want to say that you're going to move on out and make room for China or Russia to move in and take those resources? So I think the United States also feels like, in a way, it's a small price to pay. They don't have to pay any rent for their sprawling military bases. The U.S. public doesn't really extract much of a price in terms of public opinion because people are, are woefully undereducated. And uh, they, they can always, it seems, find some person uh, within Afghan ruling elites that's willing to step up to the presidency and cooperate with the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the United States. As well as being in contact with the young people in Afghanistan, you've been in contact with ex-service people in the U.S. after they've been in Afghanistan. Are they able to talk openly about their experiences and feelings about being in Afghanistan and what life has been like since they've come home? I think that there are some extraordinary publications. Extraordinary in as much as people like Rory Fanning, for instance, have uh, clearly told their stories, gone around the United States, talked with many different groups. Matthew Ho, is uh, I'll just spell that H-O-H, is another uh, former military person who now is a complete conscientious subjector. But, you know, I'm sorry to say that there's a, quite a lot of freedom of speech allowed. For many of the veterans, it's very, very, very difficult to talk about what they experienced. And the traumas can sometimes be reenacted. Uh, people talk about post-traumatic stress, and it's so real. And it shouldn't be called a disorder because it's a, it's a natural response to the killing and the abuse and the futility that uh, so many people in Afghanistan have experienced. We have this terrible, terrible reality that uh, 22, an average of 22 veterans of the United States combat every day take their lives, kill themselves, attempt suicide. And then 35% of the terrorist acts committed domestically within the United States have been committed or attempted by veterans of combat. So I think we have to eventually recognize that to talk about you know the glorious service of our armed forces to whom we're so indebted is a ridiculous thing to do because they come back broken and often very, very bitter. And, uh, you know, they're not even sure that they'll be able to get uh, health care coverage, particularly for emotional and uh, psychological ailments and uh, traumas that they've experienced. And they don't even have to go out the country. They're the ones who are trained to operate the drones. Mm. The trauma that and that's might... a, a new reality in a sense that, that they also now are beginning to claim that they suffer from post-traumatic stress. And that shouldn't be, I suppose, so unusual because, I mean, imagine if you go to your work, you know, and you say goodbye to the wife and kids or the husband and children, and then you spend all day tracking possibly the parents of another family and uh, 
you begin to know where the person goes to shop, where the person goes to worship, what time the person gets up in the morning and leaves the house, when the person comes back, and then the order comes to kill that person. Uh, that, that's a difficult order to fulfill. And then after the explosion, you know, after the person's body becomes this pool on your screen, and, and it's the heat coming from the, the body that actually forms the image on your screen, then you're to turn off your screen and head out of this dimly lit trailer and, you know, perhaps get in your car and pick up the kids at the soccer field. It's a very jarring reality, and, and people are not happy about it. Many, many, many uh, now do not want to enter into that uh, branch of so-called service. And uh, a Lieutenant Colonel Wilkerson says that the United States Armed forces are having so much trouble recruiting people to enter that uh, they've actually had to get non-commissioned officers to go and join the recruiting offices to try and lure people in. And so they offer big, big sums of money for those that would go into operating drones. When's your next visit to Afghanistan? Well, I'm hoping that I'll be able to go sometime in January or February. Our, our schedules are a bit on hold for many of us because we're awaiting the results of a, tri- of, a, of hearings, a series of hearings that will lead to a trial for the Kings Bay Plowshares witnesses. And um, I have been part of a, a walk in support of their witness and a fast in support of their witness, and I am personally very friendly to all seven of them. And so, if at all possible, I would like to go to that trial. Two of them have been over to Afghanistan with me, and I know they face long years in prison. So um, we do, it, it's important to you know keep the community strong that would accompany them during this very essential phase. So I know my friends in Afghanistan will understand if I'm waiting until I get the word on when that trial will be. It could be in January. And then, of course, in January, we also every year do the Witness Against Torture with regard to Guantanamo, the Witness Against Torture fast. And um, my young friends have always said, yes, yes, you should participate in that. So I may have to delay uh, getting over there. Uh, I had hoped to go sooner. Um, sustained a slight back injury, so I set myself back a bit. In this wrap-up for Tuesday Home Time for 2018, I'm speaking with Kathy Kelly, one of the co-coordinators of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. The war in Yemen, it's been described not as a war but as a massacre. For nearly four years now, the Arab world's poorest country has been ravaged by a bloody conflict between the Houthis, who they say are, or the West say they're, they're aided by Iran, and the others are supported, the government is supported by Saudi Arabia and, and many of the Western countries who are supplying arms and military ad- advisors. Kathy, can you take us back to the beginning of this conflict? Who are the Houthi and why are they the resistance movement in a country like Yemen? What went wrong? Well, you know, Jan, it's true that Yemen is a, a country of desperately poor people right now, but it wouldn't quite be true to say it's a poor country, um, not unlike Iraq and Afghanistan. Yemen is a country that has tremendous resources, and in terms of uh, unexploited resources, they're off 
offshore oil could be worth billions of dollars once uh, some grouping starts to extract that resource. But even without the fossil fuels, they were a country that uh, had managed to stay remarkably independent during a time when the rising power of the House of Saud was taking over more and more territory. They resisted invasion. They, they resisted interventions of other countries to take their resources at cut rate prices. They were unusual in being able to do that. Now, many of the Yemeni laborers went off to work in other countries, and then when the oil crisis fell, they were out of work, or when the construction job ended, they came back. So they had rising rates of unemployment. They were afflicted by drought. They were trying to cope with uh, lowering water tables and rising prices for fuel with cutbacks on gas subsidies, and they began to say, we, we can't let the elite cronies that are running this country continue to rob us blind. And this was at about the time of the Arab Spring. So Ali Abdullah Saleh had been the dictator for 33 years. But there was such a rise in momentum all around Yemen to say, we don't want to cooperate with you any longer, that a group called the Gulf Corporation Council, very influenced by Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and the United States, convinced Salah to step aside. He appointed his, sort of like his chief deputy, a man named Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi, to be in charge, to kind of take his place uh, as the appointed president of Yemen. But still, the people who had grievances knew that their needs were not being met, that it was kind of the same old, same old, that wealthy corporations were being invited in through the World Bank and through the International Monetary Fund, and sometimes, sadly, through some of the development agencies, the kind of modern development industry that goes on. And people were being sidelined and shortchanged and not able to do what they knew they could do if they just had access to their own resources. So there was a rebellion. Uh, these Houthi fighters know how to fight. Now, I want to add that they would not be people whom you would find going on a, a, a hajj or a, a pilgrimage either to the Shia sites in Karbala or in Qom in Iran, nor would they go to Mecca. They're their own group of uh, followers of Islam, and they are not aligned by faith to the Ayatollahs running Iran. They may have benefited from some Iranian advice and support. No one has yet shown any pictures of any big weapon shipments coming from Iran to the Houthi fighters. I imagine they know how to manipulate the black market quite well. They do get weapons. They do know how to use those weapons, and they do believe in killing. I don't believe that killing ever solves problems. But I do believe, as you've indicated in your question, that we have to try to understand why do we find these um, generations of Houthi fighters resisting so uh, vehemently? Well, at this point, if they don't resist, if they say, well, okay, we'll let the Saudis take us over, in the last four years of Saudi involvement in this war, this war on Yemen, 87,500 of their children have starved to death because of war and displacement and disease and hunger. So they, I, I don't think it would be very wise for them to say, okay, let's submit 
to Saudi Arabia, and it's pretty clear the Saudis want to bludgeon them, them into submission. And it would seem that that has a lot to do, again, with financial interests. The Saudi uh, Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, wants to offer the state oil company, Aramco, as an IPO, an, an initial public offering. Now, many analysts say that it's highly unlikely that any investors will bid on that offer, will invest, because they know that the Saudis have cash, yes, but they don't have resources. They uh, don't have more resources that they can develop. They're running out. They've, they've been depleting their resources. And so they want to acquire territory that has resources, and they look to Yemen and think, we can do this. But apparently they can't because this war has gone on and on and on. But it can't get going forever. It has to stop sooner well, or later. Uh, no, it can't go on forever in the way that it has been conducted. But I think the intelligence agencies of powerful countries, the United States and the U.K. and France, for instance, are trying to figure out how they can keep some compliant Saudi figure in charge, and maybe they would put on a veneer of reforms. But I would imagine that the essential determination to control resources within and um, on the borders of Yemen will remain. Uh, I don't think that they're going to say, oh, you know, let those people control their offshore oil reserves that we think could be exploited. Because yeah, if that were true, then why are so many countries scrambling to control the Horn of Africa's coastline? Because, again, it's believed that there are offshore reserves of very valuable fossil fuels. Are you saying that if the current prince who seems to be running the place was deposed, that things could improve? Is that what you're saying? No, no, I'm, I'm, I don't really expect that. I think that there would be uh, just enough done to calm down what uh, Secretary of State uh, Mr. Pompeo, two nights before a vote that took place in the U.S. Senate, called a caterwauling on Capitol Hill and a pile-in of the media. The caterwaul in the sense of howling, and uh, the pile-in, I think, is a reference to sports when the players all pile up and kind of smother one one player because they want to take the ball. Well, you know, maybe there certainly should be screaming and howling and wailing, raising a lament because of the slaughter of children in Yemen. Glad to see that there's an, ups, an uptick of media interest, but I don't think right now it's enough to uh, change the remarkable raw power that moneyed elites exercise when they pile in together and say, this is the kind of foreign policy we insist on. And it has traditionally been based on fear and greed and dishonesty, corruption, and then you mix that together with huge arsenals of weapons and people end up trying to say they're proud of what they've done. And to deny the entry of human rights and aid agencies into Yemen. Mm. Well, that is uh, so reprehensible. It's not only denying the entry, but even when groups can get in, 
uh, the more that the battling happens around the port city and within the port city of Hodeida, the more difficult it becomes to offload goods, desperately needed goods, from the ships. I mean, you have to have workers, and the workers have to be paid, and they have to be able to get back and forth from work and not risk their lives just to get out to the dock and have a place where they can stay. You have to have electricity. You have to have sewage and sanitation. And increasingly, that port city is moving toward a collapse. And if that city goes down, then the United Nations prediction is that another 6 million people will be right at the verge of tipping into starvation. And while the, the UN can just barely keep alive the 8 million people starving now, add 6 million more and their capacities will be ruined. To, they won't be able to cope with the crisis. They've told us that as clearly as they can. They've uh, begged through a letter, uh, including five major charities, for the United States to use all diplomatic means to pressure every one of the warring parties to stop fighting, to open the ports in the cities and the roadways. But it's sometimes as though those kinds of voices are uh, dismissed well, you know, we used to call ourselves Voices in the Wilderness, our group, when we were trying to break the economic sanctions against Iraq. And I'm sure some of the uh, heads of these major charities uh, can't believe that they are sidelined and dismissed while uh, President Trump, who knows very little about the situation, maybe cares less, and uh, some of the people he has appointed to extremely powerful positions, like John Bolton, and General Mattis and uh, Secretary of State Pompeo will refer to the lament that's being raised as caterwauling. Disgraceful, isn't it? Well, it is disgraceful. I, I suppose, you know, with the death of the Saudi journalist, Jamal Khashoggi, there was a sense that, um, well, you know, he shouldn't have been dismembered or he shouldn't have been strangulated. And some of the senators say, well, we're disappointed. You know, we, we, we were duped. Uh, the CIA reports that he was killed by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and we don't want to be, you know, led around by the nose. But, but, you know, for them to be disappointed because they didn't get the straight story on the death of one person and yet turn away from the deaths of possibly 14 million people I mean, that's this a staggering number. One out of every two in many persons. That is, uh, it's, it's, it seems so impossible, preposterous. And then you think of the Yemeni parent trying to save a child, his or her child. And, you know, imagine as that child is beginning to gasp the final rattles of, you know, the death throes and has suffered torture, really, moving to that point at the end of the child's life. And who can imagine what kinds of feelings a Yemeni parent or brother or sister would feel? And I greatly doubt that they are thinking about the machinations of powerful elites who are, you know, looking at their bank books and whatnot. And I would guess that it creates a great solidarity, a, a solidarity of suffering amongst many, many millions of people themselves have suffered this way. Are you and your friends at Voices for Creative Nonviolence able to get those messages across? 
when you're speaking in the U.S.? Are, are people listening? Well, I would say that we, there's much more interest in what's happening in Yemen than we ever experienced trying to talk to people about Iraq. I mean, we came directly from the pediatrics wards of hospitals where mothers sat cross-legged on beds holding dying children as though they were on a death row for infants. And we were very assertive in saying, look, the executioners are the heads of state of the United States and the United Kingdom who insist that these economic sanctions must continue. And the children died in the hundreds and then thousands and then the hundreds of thousands. And even after the highest level United Nations humanitarian coordinators in Iraq had both resigned, Dennis Halliday and Hans von Spenick, still you couldn't get much media attention. Uh, even as the International Atomic Energy Association was just, you know, days away from declaring there are no weapons of mass destruction, still the media was in the pocket of successive presidential and um, Pentagon organizations and administrations. So this time I find that it has not been so impossible to kind of build on the media coverage that has existed. Like, for example, we were out with our 34 backpacks representing 34 children who were on, a, they were on their field trip, and they'd just been issued UNICEF backpacks, which are so valuable because inside those backpacks are vaccines and antibiotics and vitamins. And they were excited because they were going on a trip, and they were on the bus, and a U.S. Lockheed Martin-produced missile hit their bus and killed 34 of them. It was fired by a U.S.-sold fighter plane. The Saudis fired the missile. And there were probably more than 40 children killed, but uh, the EMT workers and the people helping at the scene of the horrible crime could only assemble the body parts to allow for 34 to be identified. So we go out with those backpacks and we set them up or we carry them. We'll, we'll do it tomorrow with placards bearing the names of the children and we'll be down in Chicago's federal building. And, and my guess is that now people will come to us and say, I heard about that. I saw that on television. Uh, and that's true, you know, about both the August 9th attack and then the uh, statistics from Save the Children about uh, 87,500 children already having starved and the letters from the um, major charities. These are being covered on television. And then uh, there is at least a, a beginning of movement toward a discussion in the U.S. Congress about whether or not uh, they must invoke the authorization of the use of military force and make Congress the one to decide whether or not the U.S. should be sending armed forces into Yemen. It's a scandal that this hasn't happened so far and that it's been such a battle just to get to the point where the resolution would go on the table, more or less. Last but certainly not least, the people seeking asylum in the U.S. from Latin America... And it's instructive that most of these people are fleeing persecution and poverty in countries where the U.S. has been interfering and worse for decades. Well, this is, of course, such a, a terrible sin, I think. The United States creates chaos, bloodshed, economic collapse, and then 
people who can't survive try to go to other places. And mind you, 85% don't go anywhere near the United States or Canada or Mexico or European countries. They go very often to places where there's a bit more mercy and they actually have a chance of getting in. I'm very interested in people who went to Jeju Island off the coast of South Korea because there's no demand for a visa and Yemenis have gone there now and, and, the, and the people on the island also battered down by United States military presence are trying to figure out how to form circles of community. So refugee people fleeing the wars the United States has started, military and economic wars, are then used as sort of the symbol, the token for far-right policies that will say, we need more weapons, we need more walls, we need uh, less money for health care and education and care of our elderly and care of our children, because we have to put our resources into having weapons and ammunition and soldiers and training soldiers to kill people that might try to come in and take what we have. It's such a selfish, greedy, calumny-filled position. And, and President Trump prides himself, stress, as he exports these ideas. And they are catching on elsewhere in the world. Yes, it's not a good look right around the world now, is it? When you see so many countries falling to the alt-right? Mm, well, it is troublesome and because the weapons flow so freely and make so much money for um, various warlords and weapon-making companies. And yet, I think, you know, we have to keep in mind uh, just that very simple line, we are many, they are few. And it could be that eventually, especially as climate change uh, makes it more evident that we might not survive as a species, maybe even some of the people who have been quite comfortable, who love their grandchildren, will start to think, you know, if there's going to be a future for the grandchildren, we might have to change the way we expect to live in this world. We don't find ourselves more secure. Thank you for all of your time listening to me, Jan. I always appreciate it. I can say a happy Christmas. I hope it will be a restful time for you. Well, I, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm, I'm always surrounded by some of the kindest people in the world, and I'm grateful for that. Talk to you next year. And that's Kathy Kelly, co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence, based in Chicago, but worldwide human rights activists. Dum da 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 dum da 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 bum 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 bum. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock, and you're listening to fill in the dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to yes, fill in the. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 855am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell.
I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. Next, a roundup of areas which Sydney human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy has been working on during 2018 for Tuesday Home Time. Peter, let's begin with the Philippines. The headlines are ominous. Philippines peace talks in tatters as Duterte enters third year. Philippines leader slammed over threats to create Duterte death squad. Human rights dying under Duterte's rule. First, the peace talks. In 2016 election campaign, he pledged to resume peace talks, but obstacles to ending the 50-year communist rebel insurgency is Duterte. 2017 peace talks end. 600 on a list of terrorists. May 2018 on again cancelled in June. What's the latest count? Yeah, it's off. Um, it was almost on again just recently, like last week. But um, there was a moment where it seemed that uh, President Duterte had invited the leader of the National Democratic Front negotiating panel to come to Manila to have a, have a sort of discussion about how to proceed with the talks. But then uh, the next thing that happens is... Uh, it said that Fidel Al-Kawili, who's the leader of the NDF panel, would be arrested on arrival. <laughs> so trip was cancelled. And then, uh, sort of out of left field, uh, the head of the uh, presidential peace office, his name is Dereza, he, he resigned because it was revealed that uh, two of his immediate underlings had been engaged in gross uh, corruption, stealing money from their budget. So... He also resigned. I feel like, uh, it's just a guess, but I would say Dereza, who, who I think played a bad hand um, most of these last two years, still wanted the talks to happen, and, and this is his way of just getting out of a completely crazy dynamic that is, you know, he, he's given up. Yes, I would say that um, President Duterte is, has totally wrecked the process or opportunity for some kind of negotiation uh, with the left movement and uh, you could also conclude that it won't work with the MILF, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front either um, because of his way of uh, switching things on and off abruptly and uh, never really completing any commitment. Well not having that commitment, what does it mean for the people on the ground? Well the unfortunate alternative to this is heightened repression. So uh, just uh, two nights ago, for instance, I was very shocked to get a message on my phone saying that Satu Campo, who's a nearly 80-year-old veteran leader from the people's movement, various, in various ways, but in the 1980s, he, he led the peace talks with uh, Corazon Aquino's government for the NDF. And uh, since then, he's been in the Congress for three terms and 
He's a, he's a well-regarded person. But he was arrested along with uh, 73 other people in Mindanao because he was investigating the closure of a school by an armed militia. And uh, now it turns out as well as him being arrested, the all of the teachers of the school and the students of the school were arrested and... Uh, a member of Congress who is a former leader of the teachers' union, and her name is Frances Castro, uh, she was also arrested. And again, I think that's completely unconstitutional to arrest a member of Congress who's uh, talking to constituents. But um, this kind of thing is extreme, you know, in terms of what uh, people try to do in the legal uh, advocacy space in the country, which I, you'd have to say is shrinking rapidly. And... Um, for those people who are perhaps on the edge in the grey zone, like the farmers in Negros uh, in October who were killed, they were tilling the soil of land which was they're entitled to under the agrarian reform law but hasn't been implemented properly for them. So they're pushing they're like a direct action, but it's certainly not violent or endangering life or anything like that, but they... When they were arresting at night, they were just machine guns and nine were killed. So there's that happening and, and uh, the closure of the Lumate school tends to violence. That is, people with guns do that. They tend to burn the schools. And then there's aerial bombardment, artillery strikes, so on happening on Indigenous people, especially in Mindanao, but also in, in the northern part of the country, in the Cordillera. So that's the alternative to the peace talks. That is that the military, the police, the militias organised by the military will attack, kill, uh, destroy and, and otherwise try to uh, you know, break up and suppress any sort of democratic voice. Talk about creating a death squad. I would say that they've already got them, haven't they? Well, that's what these militias are to some extent. The... The one that uh, shut down the school two nights ago is called Alamara. It's been really running since 1990s. And uh, it's, it's a sort of um, a mercenary force drawn from within the community. So it's very divisive when this happens. They're given guns and then occasionally they'll shoot someone. You know? So that's, it's always a calibrated thing. It's not as if they just uh, wake up one day and say, I'm going to kill someone. No, it's a sort of a plan. And then the more insidious thing, though, is the clear operation of uh, military intelligence units against, say, this lawyer who was killed in Negros soon after the, the farm workers were killed. It's clear he was under surveillance for a long time. He, he had had death threats on his phone. There had been official posters put up with his face among the other faces saying they're wanted terrorists. And uh, and then two guys on a motorcycle pop up and just uh, gun him down. This uh, pattern of two people on a motorbike, one of them being the shooter, is extremely common. So um, not not 100% of the assassinations, but maybe 80% of the assassinations happen that way. It's been such a long-standing pattern, and very occasionally, you know, someone gets exposed, and they, they turn out to be um, military. So, um, yeah, or, or police in some cases, but mainly military. This merely means that there's a, a tight command structure involved. It's a plan, and uh, it's really actually a reflection of the uh, US 
counterinsurgency manual. So, you know, the idea that you kill unarmed civilians is an official military policy. And it seems that it doesn't really matter who people are. They can be trade unions, journalists, priests, peasant leaders. They're a target. That's right. That's right. So the military have uh, extensive surveillance programs. They map their local communities. They identify leaders and eventually someone's going to order that one or more of those leaders be killed. That is what's happening. So it's very, very large scale. You know, it's a lot of machinery behind it in terms of the surveillance and the databases and so on. In, in the official jargon, in the military units have a thing called the order of battle. And the order of battle is really lists of these civilians. You can imagine what this does to the psychological well-being of people wondering when my turn's going to come. Yes, yes. Well, I think you get that range of reactions, of course. But uh, because this has been going on for so long, going back into the Marcos years, so we're talking about the 1970s, people know that the running away, um, giving up, doesn't end it. You know, so... Of course, some individuals have to, you know, they call it uh, lie low. Some have to leave the country and live in exile. Some go to the mountains and join the New People's Army. And others, though, because of their own circumstances and their own commitment, will stay in their community organisation and try to build protection around themselves. Yeah, so people try to use the media, their connections to the church, lawyers, their political associations to get some protection but but often you know the shock is it doesn't work sometimes you know the very very egregious case of the Maguindanao massacre which is now nine years ago just about nine years ago you know in this last couple of weeks was a big miscalculation the people were aware there was danger so they just made a huge convoy I'm not sure how many people were in it but I think I think nearly everyone was killed in the end. So around roughly 65 people, many lawyers, many journalists, uh, women, mainly women, just to lodge a nomination form for an election. But they miscalculated the madness of the um, sitting governor and his family and there were 100 people mobilised you know, with uh, guns to kill them. And they were mobilised with bulldozers to build, dig big ditches and bury all the cars and bodies. It's a massive operation. So, so you know, it's, it's shocking to think that that, that could happen. And um, even up till now, no one's been found guilty of even one of those deaths. People do get the miscalculation thing. I think I've asked you this question before, Peter, but I'll ask it again. Why is the Philippines like this there were other countries in parts of the world and human rights aren't still good but they're nothing like they are in the philippines why is the philippines virtually out on its own with the violence against its own people it's not quite on its own really but, no, uh, but it is it is so bad i think that it's, it's very difficult to sum it up in a few sentences but the um you know, the sort of social development that we would think in Australia should happen with democracy and so on has been a really arrested a long time ago in the Philippines 
because of the colonialism and its colon yeah its colonial history in the twentieth century especially. So it's a surprise to people when you say that in the Philippines that was the first republic declared in Asia. It was eighteen ninety eight, and um, the uprising began in eighteen ninety six against the Spanish. But the United States took over the place uh, with a very brutal war. So again, you know, the, the sort of cream of the of the people, that is the leaders of the democratic republican movement at that time were all killed. And then we had the Japanese occupation, which was also very brutal in World War II. Uh, and then after the war, the Cold War set in meant that the people who had led the resistance against the Japanese occupation, that is the renewal of the democratic movement in the country, were vilified, driven out of the Congress, and then there was another war. Uh, and again, a lot of people were killed. And now we had the Marcos thing in the, at the end of the 60s and the early 70s. Again, um, the democratic movement had a resurgence, especially in response to the Vietnam War and the fact that that their country was a base for bombing Vietnam, sending troops, uh, American troops to Vietnam and so on. Uh, reaction to that was martial law. And again, the, the United States was, in, it was Nixon's administration was fully supportive <laughs> of martial law, which really meant mass internment. There were tens of thousands of political prisoners and the assassination of people and even the random shooting of people at, at rallies and so on. You know, the United States, I would say, bears a huge responsibility for, you know, what happened in that country in the 20th century and its insistence that, you know, the, the, the worst sort of people will become the government that is the most un undemocratic and ruthless and uh, self-serving people are the government of the Philippines because they will do the bidding of the United States. I think that that, that really is is the sort of answer to your question. And because of that, the sort of potential for a democratic culture to, to develop and blossom and for prosperity for most of the people has really been truncated and uh, it's, it's a huge frustration. That's why there's a huge outflow of uh, workers from the Philippines all over the world, including in Australia, seeking a job and trying to support their families back home where the economy cannot really support them. I'm just wondering how many deportations are happening of witnesses, foreigners who might be witnessing these instances of, of mass killings or just ordinary killings in the Philippines. We've got Sister Pat Fox who fought against her deportation for six months or so. Others have been deported as well who were witness to what was going on there. Yes, we've got another Australian, uh, Professor Gil Beringer. He uh, used to be the Dean of Law at Macquarie University. Um, he's married to a Filipino woman who works in the LUMAD schools in Mindanao. And so he's, he's been on quite a few fact-finding missions and, you know, election observer missions and so on over the last uh, 20 years. And uh, he, he was deported in July this year, the start of July. He, he was flying in to visit his wife and... Uh, didn't make it past the airport and three missionaries who I met myself in Mindanao this year uh, were not deported but if they didn't leave they would have been deported so their religious organizations asked them to just uh, go quietly so one was from Malawi 
One was from Zimbabwe and one was from the United States. And you've got Sister Pat. So personally, I know five. <laughs> I know five myself. And uh, I know that there were a couple of Europeans who I've never met who who tried to enter the country for conferences in uh, like March this year. And they, they were turned around at the airport as well. So we, we're witnessing a new dimension of the policy of Duterte's uh, government, which is to try to cut off foreign witnessing of what's going on. Um, inside the country. Yeah. Have you had time to speak to Sister Pat? Yes, actually, she's here in Sydney now, and um, I'm escorting her around to some different trade union offices today and some politicians on uh, Monday and uh, church organisations. And then on Tuesday, we're going down to Canberra for giving evidence at the Human Rights Subcommittee of uh, the Parliament. I think that um, yeah, those members of the federal parliament are very keen to hear you know, what she thinks is, is going on in the Philippines. So she's still, you know, laughingly asking, you know, what really in the end? Why did they pick on me because I'm such a quiet person? <laughs> and that's true. You know, she's a she's a very much a person who sits at the side or the back and uh, doesn't push herself forward. I've been talking to her for the last. You know, visiting visiting the Philippines, I've met her many times in the last seven or eight years, and uh, she's always had this very low profile presence. But uh, anyway, she may well laugh about why Duterte got obsessed with her, but um, he did, and uh, he absolutely didn't relent until she was out of the country. So, um, on the other hand, she's still got a legal case going on there, and she's very hopeful that she can go back. I think she's sort of a bit bit heartbroken to be so far away from all the people she's she's been working with all these years. And I was told that they, she wasn't even allowed to say goodbye to her friends when she was deported. That's right. There was a sort of rush at the end. So uh, instead of you know being able to have, say, half an hour or more with a group of supporters at the airport, a large number of police just surrounded her and just hustled her through the gates and away from, you know, away from the public area. Um, and, and she didn't, yeah, she, she's annoyed because there were people that were dear to her that she didn't really get to say goodbye to properly. Yeah, so that was, that's the police. <laughs> I think that, as she says, they're, they're completely out of control now because Duterte just continually tells them they can murder and rape and uh, they'll be protected. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time and I'm speaking to Sydney human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy for his wrap-up of 2018. Moving to Zimbabwe, in one year it's undergone a historic change. There was a military coup just over a year ago, ousting Mugabe, who was supposed to be the president for life. In August, a new president declared and admits protests and violence and before the election a lot of talk there's been a landmark change in credibility what's the reality of life in Zimbabwe yes well I think uh, first of all it's pretty grim uh, on the basic daily living front the, the cash shortages the rumour swirling through the place um, the, just the a very, very low uh, incomes of the people are surviving on. That's all stayed the same or got a bit worse even uh, since Mugabe uh, was deposed. It's, I think,
wrong to say that the current government is, is uh, the one that came in after the election is uh, characterised by violent protests and, and all of that. That's, that's not true. But yesterday, uh, so not many hours ago, there was a big protest against the government over the economic situation that was uh, organised by Nelson Chamisa, who's currently the, the leader of the Movement for Democratic Change. But there's a huge sort of hollowness inside the Movement for Democratic Change now, so nothing is quite what it appears to be. The, uh, let me think how to say it, uh, Cause Morgan Chungarai, who was the first leader uh, of MDC, died in February this year from cancer. There was a real vacuum developing as he was so ill and uh, a space for Nelson Chamisa to sort of seize the power rather than um, go through any party constitutional process about confirming his leadership or somebody else's. So the election took place in that kind of environment and uh, was characterised by a lot of violence from his side, inside MDC itself. And since the election, uh, which he, he didn't win, this sort of dynamic has continued, but because he didn't win those voices inside MDC that want to operate by the rule of law and not have violence as a political tool are getting a bit more traction and uh, insisting that there be some kind of proper process now to elect the leadership of the party. So Nelson Chamisa is reacting to that with threats uh, of violence. We'll see what happens on that side. The worst thing that happened was terrible violence on August 1, which was like the day after the vote, two days after the vote, and the the presidential vote had not been declared. So there was a protest launched at the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission office, and uh, it was a serious, you know, attempt to invade and smash up the office. So that would have neutralised or destroyed the vote count, probably. The police didn't manage it, and. Uh, they did call in the army. And now there were six people killed at least by gunfire uh, that that day and not, not all, you know, close to the ZEC office. Some were killed apparently more in the commercial area of Harare. So there, it was, uh, I think, uh, a complete spoiler from everybody's point of view that that happened because the international community could not look at that situation and say the election was a free and fair process. They didn't want to say it was a, com a completely unfair and unfree process, but it was definitely uh, deeply degraded or marred by, by that violence. So the government's response was to set up a commission of inquiry, and it's headed by a former president of South Africa, and uh, some... Zimbabwean figures and some other international figures that are in it. I think they've just completed their uh, investigation and they've, they've presented a report to the government, but it hasn't been released. But in the evidence that was uh, put publicly in their hearings, there's, an, there's uh, some doubt clearly there that uh, some of the people killed were not killed by the army. So the question is who did kill them? And there's also plenty of evidence about the violence of the attack on the uh, Electoral Commission itself. So um, the question is who's behind it. And, and in previous interviews, I'm pretty sure I've said that uh, 
the uh, Mugabe himself is behind this. He's the one to benefit most from uh, wrecking the election. And uh, to some extent, Nelson Chamisa is, is like his puppet or, you know, his front man. And uh, this is still what's happening now. It's there's different angles where you can see that um, Nelson Chamisa has really got former Mugabe people really working with him. The the faction that was uh, really ousted with along with Mugabe in, in ZANU PF was called G40 or Generation 40 or the Youth, and uh, G40 figures are, are still prominently associated with uh, what Nelson Chamisa is doing today. So it's a bit bewildering for the outside observer to think, you know, Mugabe's still there. Uh, wasn't he knocked over last year? And uh, that uh, the MDC, which was so which was formed to fight Mugabe's uh, dictatorship is somehow now captured by Mugabe. But uh, unfortunately, that's the current situation. And surely it can't be stable. It won't last like this, but uh, that's that's the situation. And I, I do think that the people are suffering enormously as a result. And of course, uh, Mugabe never, ever uh, showed any concern you know, in, in 40 years about you know, what the people were suffering. Does that instability mean that the foreign aid is not coming in, financial aid? I would put it this way, that uh, for a while, especially since Mugabe was deposed, the international community has been waiting for a sign that some sort of fundamental change has taken place and they have not been uh, helping financially uh, except like a drip feed. It, you know, my image in my mind is that uh, Zimbabwe is uh, a patient in the ICU and there's all these uh, tubes and occasionally, uh, you know, the doctor will uh, pour some uh, food or some medicine down one of the tubes and keep the patient alive. So you read in the newspaper that uh, the European Union provided $20 million for an agricultural training program or... Some other, like just recently, India provided $20 million worth of, not even 20, a few million dollars worth of medicines. And this is actually the pattern. And the, the World uh, Food uh, Program is, is providing grain in to feed people, quite a lot of people, maybe half a million people. That sort of food aid is going on. But really, the, the country is just staggering in terms of providing jobs, children actually being able to afford to go to school, uh, university students doing anything, the health system is pretty well uh, shattered. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's in my mind, it's actually hard to see how does it even hold together. The reason it can hold together is because there is a power structure which has still got a lot of financial resources for itself. So it's it's united in keeping keeping the semblance of a state operational. But how long can that happen? Go on for? Well, again, I think I think we've all run out of theories about social change to cope with what's going on in Zimbabwe. But I think we we know enough about human uh, human societies and our own psychology to know that eventually. This will crack. You know, it will go one way or another. But there, there, there is a very big danger that there could be a lot of violence and a lot of loss of life. It's still, you know, a real possibility. But, but I think to counter that point, the new government 
really is, uh, I think, quite uh, firmly committed to shifting out of the Mugabe period. And um, there is some signs that this is happening in, in that there's, uh, I would say, maybe a 30% type of campaign against the corruption that's so endemic in the system. And quite a few figures are being removed from uh, boards and quite a few less, but still many more than before, are uh, arrested and uh, being, being put into the court system somehow. There's a pressure, a real pressure for resources to, to end up in the public sphere and, and stop being siphoned off and robbed by different uh, shadowy figures. I think in the past, all the shadowy figures were channeling the money to Mugabe's system. And to some extent, Mugabe's system is still in place, not not like it was a year ago, but it's still there. So <clears throat> you hear people talking about um, the big system, the big machine, uh, the Queen Bee, someone or some group that's really managing all of this corruption. Um, and, and it's sort of half true. So uh, the fact is no one's naming every you know the key people yet. And it makes you question whether uh, Manangagwa and his team are, are really going to make a difference or are they have they got a plan to eventually crack this open? Um, it's, it's hard, to, it's hard to, to be 100% confident about that too. So uh, uh, I would say that the uh, broad change that's happened that most people will accept is true is that it's now a place where you can say your mind and not be arrested. You can generally have a rally and not be smashed. You can form a political party or uh, some type of campaign movement without it being crushed. So there, there is actually more democratic space and it is a relief to people. The police checkpoints, especially all being gone, is, is a big relief to people. So that's something that uh, is measurable and I think the international community can also understand that uh, there is a difference between now and the Mugabe period. Somehow or other, we on the outside of the country need to be able to discern the, um, re the genuine democratic activists or actors in the situation and talk to them about how to shift out of this current situation, which is, uh, is un unstable and unviable, and then do something once we do understand you know, what what uh, is going to be the most helpful. Personally, I do think that uh, the international community has got an opportunity with the report of this uh, Commission of Inquiry into the August 1 violence. If it's a credible report, then there should be a step taken to uh, affirm that that's a good thing and then there's going to be an extra level of assistance to the country. And uh, there's, there's plenty of things to be done, especially through the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Australia itself is, is a voter on those boards and got a voice in that. Finally, Peter, Timor-Leste and the Greater Sunrise Oil and Gas Fields. Yes, well, I think there's been two surprise announcements in the last couple of months that the government of Timor has decided to purchase the shares of, uh, first of all, the ConocoPhillips, which was 30% of the Greater Sunrise Joint Venture, and then just recently the shares of Shell, Royal Dutch Shell, uh, which was, I think, 26.6% of uh, 
the joint venture. These things needed to be uh, affirmed by the Parliament of Timor-Leste, and I think that the... It's, it's hard... I haven't been able to get a clear answer, but I think that uh, at least the Council of Ministers uh, and the budget has reflected the decision on the ConocoPhillips purchase, and uh, therefore at least 30% of the project is, is in the hands of the Timorese government. And uh, to me, this is a, a big upping of the stakes. And I presume if, if the, that purchase has gone through, then, then the next one will go through. And uh, that would give the uh, Timorese government a controlling interest in the project. And therefore, even though the, the joint venture agreement probably requires uh, 100% consensus uh, on going forward, you know, that therefore Woodside and a, a Japanese gas company uh, earning the remainder of the shares uh, would, would still have to agree. But uh, it's, it's like a huge expansion of the financial commitment of the Timorese to the project involving many billions of dollars. So the, the, the worry is that virtually, virtually the entire financial assets of the country are going to be invested in this project and if it doesn't work out then the, that would be the bankruptcy of Timor. This won't uh, play itself out and we won't be clear for a few more years I, I think so you know, we'll, there'll be a politics going on inside Timor about this and uh, the international oil industry for a start and then the, the international financial sector as well will be really watching closely, I think, uh, how, how it plays out. And the trial in Australia of Witness K and Bernard Collery? Mm. For now, it seems that uh, most of it's going to be conducted in secret and uh, that some of the lawyers even won't be allowed to... Uh, uh, Bernard Collery's lawyers in particular won't be allowed to attend the, the hearings. So there's clearly some kind of uh, mobilising going on in the uh, uh, judicial community in Australia, the, the, the law associations and so on, about this particular trial because mm, it's, it's really clear that uh, this trial has got nothing to do with uh, protecting Australia's national security and yet it's, uh, it's really trampling on the normal rights of people to uh, a defence and so on in a trial. So... I think it will be a bigger problem for Australia than anybody else, um, but it, it is, I think, a kind of answer by the Australian government to the Timorese about the final settlement of the uh, seabed boundary and, and so on. So uh, what it seems to be deep, deeper down saying is Australia will continue to spy on <laughs> and manipulate Timor does not agree that it shouldn't be doing it. Incredible. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then a lot of things going on in Australia are incredible. Exactly. Uh, so it's all part of a bigger problem for us, the Australian people, about, in terms of what is our democracy and how do we hold uh, our political institutions and leaders accountable for, you know, to the standard we thought that we were operating by. Yeah. Well, all I can say, Peter, is thank you very much for your contributions through the year and hopefully talk to you again in the new year. I'm looking forward to that and uh, the program's contribution to you know, people's information and uh, understanding of the situation we're in is really, really important. So congratulations to you too. Thank you.
And that's Peter Murphy, human rights and trade union activist from Sydney. And I know it has been a bit down so far on the program, but unfortunately there's so many places in the world now where people are suffering and it needs, I believe it needs publicity. We um, often stick our head in the sand and pretend that things are okay. But, but coming up, I've got Tim Anderson. He's just been to Cuba and I think that's... Um, going to be a winner. In the summer I went swimming in the summer. summer. Summer brings swimming, summer brings picnics in the park and summer brings the 3CR Summer Wine Fundraiser. Thanks to the support of Small Patch Wine Store in Hawthorne, we're selling 3CR Radical Radio labelled wines for only $15 a bottle. And they're even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR at those summer festivities. Call the station between 9 to 5 on 9419 8377 to order or go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Then you can drop into our Fitzroy studios to collect before the 21st of December. Small Patch Wine Store is a 3CR supporter. This Thursday, come along to a lecture celebrating the 80th anniversary of the Fourth International, the World Party of Socialist Revolution founded by Leon Trotsky in 1938. It'll be delivered by David North, chairman of the World Socialist website and the Socialist Equality Party in the United States. The lecture... The Class Struggle, Revolution and Socialism in the 21st Century is on at the University of Melbourne, Labie Theatre, December 6th at 6.30pm. Further details at wsws.org. A 3CR supporter. Earlier this morning I spoke with Dr Tim Anderson and we focused on Cuba and a little bit of Brazil and Venezuela. And unfortunately, the line to Tim wasn't the best, but I'm sure that you'll get the messages across that Tim is putting in this interview. First, we spoke about an issue that's been in the mainstream media in recent times, the announcement that close to 8,400 Cuban doctors, part of the More Doctors program, launched in August 2013 in Brazil, have been pulled out. And I asked him... Why? Cuba and Brazil is agreement um, to provide medical services to areas in Brazil that had no doctors, and there weren't sufficient Brazilian doctors to do that. It, it mirrored what Cuba and Venezuela did back in the early 2000s, uh, and with Cuba and Venezuela, it was tens of thousands. In the case of Brazil, until recently, there's been 8,000 Cuban doctors there. So the Brazilian state contracts them to create a new system of public health, basically, and to develop public health services in uh, in all the areas of Brazil, but particularly areas that didn't have doctors. The current incoming president, the right-wing president, Bolsonaro, has been hostile to Cuba, but also to investment in public health. You know, in most countries, doctors are private businesses, basically, and the government often subsidizes them, but... The private doctors are typically hostile to the creation of salaried public doctors and salaried public doctor services, including in our country. 
So the Cubans decided to withdraw because there was such hostility from Bolsonaro as a candidate. They decided to withdraw the doctors, seeing that the whole program was falling over. And in ready, at least a couple of thousand Cuban doctors have returned to, to Cuba. Who's going to suffer because of this? Well, the poor people in Brazil that don't have public health services, of course, it's very well known that private doctors charge fees or additional fees and poor people can't afford to do that. Poor people always go to hospitals if there are hospitals or emergency sections of hospitals or some sort of public service where they're not being charged a fee. So they're the people who are immediately dispossessed by this. That's an awful lot of people, though, Tim. If there's over 8,000 doctors leaving, are they all going to leave at once or are they, they dragging they're, it out a bit? They're coming fairly steadily in groups back. Like I said, I, I believe about 2,000 have returned now of the 8,000. But they began before... Bolsonaro hasn't even been sworn in. He's not being sworn in as president until January. But he's made his position very clear, hostility to the program, and uh, the Cubans aren't going to put up with that. Even though it's a very big commercial contract for them, of course, the Cubans are gaining in a sense that the health system is paid for these doctors, that the doctors themselves get a, an additional salary as a benefit for them in going to Brazil, but the Cuban health system itself gets um, a payment for this, so it's a commercial operation. Would there, in a sense, also be dangers to the doctors in a situation like it's going to be once he gets into power? Well, he's already insulted them and said all sorts of things about them, said they're slaves and, and a lot of disrespectful things that show that he's not going to support the program and he's going to withdraw support from it. So the Cubans decided to move first, basically. Now, in terms of the scheduling of them leaving the country, I'm not sure how that works. This is, after all, a Brazilian program. It's called Doctors for the Poor or Doctors for Everyone. And it hasn't been dismantled yet because Bolsonaro's not yet in office, but... He's made it very clear that he's hostile to it. And behind him, you have, of course, the private doctors' associations that have been opposed to this program too. At this juncture in time, where are the Cuban doctors at the moment outside the country? Oh, they're in many countries. They've, for many decades, they've been in dozens of countries, but mainly in Latin America and Africa. We know that there is still around 200 in East Timor, but... There's some programs in Asia, but it's mainly been a, a range of African countries and Latin American countries. And the, the way in which it's compensated commercially depends on the country. So, for example, with Brazil and Venezuela, which are wealthy countries, and also some of the Gulf monarchies, for example, the Cubans charge a commercial fee for providing public doctors. And often they have a, the countries will actually ask for specialists because there's a very high level of specialists in in Cuba too so that uh, even the Pacific Islands the Solomon Islands will say we want specialists in these areas and can you provide them and so on but of course the Solomon Islands doesn't compensate or pay to the same degree that a country like Brazil or, or Venezuela does. And then of course you've got the doctors from those countries who would come to Cuba and be trained there as well. That's right Cuba takes students, medical students from a range of countries, including the US. It used to be free, but um, in the last decade they've changed it so that there is um, payment. For example, I was when I was in Cuba recently, I was talking to some of the 30 Timorese postgraduate doctors that are doing specialist training there, and 
even Timor-Leste, through the government, not, not through individuals, is paying maybe something between six and $10,000 a year for those scholarships. They're, if they're private students, say, from the US or Canada or Australia, they can also do medical training and pay maybe around $10,000, which is a lot less than we charge in our country, but the, the Cubans have decided to commercialise it. But it, it depends on the capacity to pay of the, of the people in the country they're coming from. What areas of specialisation are the Timorese focusing on? Well, they're in nine different areas. There's 30 of them in nine areas. So they've, they've got a range of, um, a wide range, um, you know, to do with kidneys, what's that called, phrenology and heart and oncology cancer. So all of the, the large areas they're trying to populate for the first time because the Cubans have trained around a thousand doctors. I think at the end of next year it'll be a thousand and twenty and they will have fulfilled the promise made by Fidel Castro 13 years ago to train the thousand doctors. So they've got a lot of general doctors but they have very little specialist training and um, the Australians haven't helped much. There's been a couple of scholarships but a lot of the, the Australian scholarships are to do with short-term training and work experience. Um, not really, you know, most um, specialist medical training are courses of four years or at least three years, generally four years. So there's a couple of teamaries that did uh, anesthesia, what is anesthesiology in, in Fiji with an Australian scholarship. But there are very few specialists amongst the teamaries doctors and Cuba's been offering those scholarships with the government paying a certain amount. Um, for some years now, and just last year they took advantage of it and sent these 30 students over. What was the main foci for your visit this time, Tim? Oh, it was a general research visit, basically, part of my study leave, and I was looking at the, the constitutional change that's going on, the economic reform that's linked to the constitutional change in Cuba, and updating myself on some issues like the, um, the health cooperation and also the, the pharmaceutical cooperation amongst the Latin American countries. But the big political issue, I guess, there is the, the creation of a new constitution, which is, was in the middle of the consultations when I was there, and it's going to go through the parliament next month in January, and there'll be elections and a referendum in, in February on the new constitution. What areas are they looking at for a new constitution? A lot of the main changes there have been uh, adaptations to policy changes that have taken place in Cuba in the last 20 years. The economic reforms, the introduction of foreign investment in a in large scale from the 90s onwards. Some other issues like dual citizenship, which has been around for a while but not really dealt with in a formal legal way. Same-sex marriage as an extension of their anti-discrimination laws that on the plan to put into the constitution because the previous constitution recognised marriages between men and women despite all the education they'd done on, on, on gay sexuality and so on there was something in the constitution that had to be changed that by the way is a big hot potato because most of the churches in Cuba have been campaigning against it and of course there's a fair degree of Latin machismo which is anti-homosexual too so in a sense the government's been ahead of the culture in many ways and trying to lead it so but that's been one of the big controversies and just the fact that there are all those churches in cuba just belies the fact that you know it's a communist country and they're against all religions and everything that goes with that 
they were against the, the Catholic Church is the biggest one, of course. There are other, other churches, but there was a big conflict between the Cuban government and the Catholic Church for the first probably two decades of the revolution because the Catholic Church was actively collaborating with the U.S. to try and overthrow the Cuban Revolution. And they kidnapped a lot of children, supposedly, you know, kidnapping them from communism, taking away from their parents, the so-called Peter Pan operation. So there was a lot of aggravating factors in the 60s and, to some extent, the 70s. That was resolved to a fair degree in the 80s in terms of the Cuban Revolution and Fidel Castro's relationship with the Catholic Church and particularly with the popular church in Latin America, the, 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 the liberation theology, which has always had a strong base in, in Cuba. But um, So there hasn't been that serious contradictions between the church and the state in Cuba since the mid-'80s. But, but So they have property, they have churches, even there's a certain degree of revivalism in Christianity in Cuba in recent decades, but at a minority level because African religion is actually the biggest religion in Cuba. But the difference is they don't run the school system at all. The state runs the school system. The public education is public education in Cuba. So if the churches want to do education, religious education, they, they do it after school hours and on Sundays. Did any of those Peter Pan children get back to Cuba? Yeah, there's, some very, there's even been documentaries made about this because they're all now my age more or less you know they're 60 or something like that and they grew up as sort of poster children for the the counter-revolution in florida for example but um when the i don't know if you remember the elian gonzalez issue that was a young child who was survivor of a, of a shipwreck his mother uh, tried to get to the u.s the dangerous crossings from cuba to florida were encouraged until recently by u.s law and practice there was a wet foot, dry foot policy which said that any Cuban who got to the U.S. automatically could claim political asylum and have a green card, which no other Latin American could have. Obama actually got rid of that policy, although there's still law that gives preference to Cuban migrants arriving, say, across the Mexican border. But they stopped those dangerous crossings. Anyway, Elian Gonzalez was a survivor of that wreck. He was adopted by some of his um, relations in Florida, and there was a big tussle between Cuba and um, the U.S. under the Clinton administration, and eventually he was returned to Cuba because the Clinton administration, to its credit, and the Justice Department recognised that the boy should go back to his father in Cuba. There was a huge controversy, and during that time, the Peter Pan children came out in public and that he supported the alien going back to his father in Cuba. But one interesting thing that came out then was that they were a fairly tight community. They'd grown up knowing each other, but they were too afraid to talk to each other in the climate of Miami and South Florida to say that to each other because there was such a climate of, you could say, fear, but also a fear of breaking ranks there that they didn't speak to each other about it until a filmmaker came along. So those uh, Peter Pan children, there's been some books written about it now, their, their whole experience. A new president for Cuba since April this year, and his name is not Castro. <laughs> Miguel Diaz-Canel. So he's a younger man. He's late 50s. He was born around the time of the revolution, I think just after, in 1960. He's come up through the ranks. He's well-known in the, in the, the Communist Party there, but uh, of course he doesn't 
come from that historic generation that went through the revolution, the, the Castro brothers. By the way, none of the Castro children have really had serious political careers. They're, they're all professionals. They're well-known. I suppose Mariella, Raul Castro's daughter, is the best known for her pro-transgender and, and gay campaigning in the centre, the National Centre for Sex Education there. But she's not really a, a contender for government minister or anything like that. So there hasn't been any dynastic um, process in Cuba. But Miguel is, is certainly a change in the sense that, well, I mean, every, anything was a change after Fidel Castro. You, you couldn't you couldn't replicate or, or, or fill the boots of Fidel Castro. So one of the political changes going on with the Constitution at the moment is to separate out the posts of President, Prime Minister and the First Secretary of the Communist Party. In the past, Fidel Castro had all those posts. In practice, the, there wasn't and there still isn't a elected president because the Prime Minister, a member of Parliament, is called the President of the Council of Ministers. A lot of people don't understand that. They think that there was no election for president. Actually, there was the president was always, uh, or since the 1970s, has been a effective prime minister. And Fidel and Raúl and Miguel Diaz Canal are elected to a seat in parliament, and then they, they the parliament elects them to their their offices and and the other ministers. So Miguel has just done a bit of a world tour. I, I think it's fair to say he hasn't really made an impact yet internationally. Even in Cuba, he's still. People are waiting to see what his initiatives are really going to be. So there's a degree of um, uncertainty there. But there was a very high degree of participation in the consultations over the Constitution. Literally millions of people took part in giving feedback uh, on the proposals that were made to change the Constitution. So it wasn't like in our system where it goes through the Parliament and then it goes to a referendum. It went through the Parliament. It goes to the mass organisations for several months. It comes back to the party. The party uh, does a reduction of all of those proposals for changes, goes back to the parliament, and then goes out to a referendum, which, as I said, will be with the national elections in February. Tim, were you there for the celebrations for the, the life of Fidel Castro? He died two years ago now. I was there just after that, um, some months after that. And, um, yeah, you're right, the second anniversary just passed. I was there... A few months afterwards, and I saw a lot of demonstrations were still going on uh, that saying we're all Fidel and really very moving ones by, by children, school children, university students and so on. It was a very extended, and I was there for, it was at the end of National Day, the end of January, Jose Marti's birthday, and there was a lot of um, that type of expression there. So, you know, everyone there has grown up with Fidel, even... You know, he was in power so long and so unique a leader in the sense that he wasn't just a resistance, great resistance leader, but he, he built a new nation and he repelled invasion attempts and uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, he reconstructed Cuba. So he was a towering figure, not just in Cuba, but in Latin America. So people certainly aren't forgetting Fidel in a, in a hurry. Uh, on the other hand, there's no statues to Fidel. He didn't like the personality cult. Uh, ideas, even though there's statues of plenty of other Cuban figures, but there are no statues of Fidel in Cuba. What did you find out about how the economy is going while you were there? So the economy has changed in some respects, and it's got some serious challenges. And they're talking 
openly about it. You know, for example, there's a lot of small business, but the wholesale supply of those small businesses is a disaster, frankly. It's really bad. There are shortages of all sorts of things. Basically, they haven't got their wholesale supply together. And while they've been talking about reforming a lot of the state enterprises, which still dominate the economy, there's still a degree of inflexibility there, which they've got to deal with. They know the problem. Uh, they talk about the problem a lot. They even talk about, for example, the the Vietnamese model, because they respect the Vietnamese, but they, uh, more so than perhaps other countries like China, because the Vietnamese went through a massive struggle against imperialism, as the Cubans did, but they're not copying the, the Vietnamese. They recognise that they're in a different situation and they haven't done that level of market socialism the Vietnamese has. There's been talk about, for example, extending the private and the cooperative sector to as much as 40% of the economy, but I would say it's less than 20%, maybe still only maybe 15 to 20%, something like that. And um, on the other hand, there have been some changes. Um, there's, there is a lot of small business, including in food and restaurants and so on, um, and other areas. Um, the Internet is now... It, it was very slow to for mass affordable access to the internet. There's been internet for 15 or 20 years there, but it's been expensive and slow. And just in the last three years or so, it's become affordable and fast. And there are hundreds and hundreds of uh, Wi-Fi zones around the country where Cubans, like other people, are now sitting there with their heads in a, in a screen, you know, and they're participating in social media much more than they were five or ten years ago. Some of those changes happened, yeah. Tourism? Tourism, uh, it has been growing steadily since the 90s, but the, uh, you have to recognise that Obama had a very big impact on it in terms of US tourism. Uh, I mean, before Obama, there was already a million Canadian tourists a year, but that's a country that's farther away with a tenth the population of the US. Obama establishing diplomatic relations and actually visiting Cuba himself and walking through the streets of Havana and going on Cuban television, that had an impact in Cuba as well as in the U.S. And so they, apparently two years ago, they were up to about a million U.S. tourists, of whom about a third were Cuban-Americans. Now, that's pulled back now to some degree because Trump reversed some of those initiatives the actual economic blockade laws are still in place, so there's still a whole lot of problems. But somehow or other, they got around it to a certain degree so that, for example, credit cards are now much more readily used in Cuba. There are a lot more ATMs. Even the private uh, room and house renting in Cuba is uh, Airbnb, for example, which is an American company, a North American company. Those, that American company is paying... Cuban households for that. Trump has blocked certain things like the Gaviota tourist operator, which, are, which is run by the military. So he's sort of, he's made it harder for tourists, but there's still a lot of North American tourists in Cuba, and I believe the figure's now hitting about 5 million a year. So a few years ago it was 3 million, now it's 5 million, and there's a, there's a huge construction boom still going on in hotels, I mean, particularly at the upmarket end of hotels, five-star hotels, there's several new ones there last month compared to last year, and another dozen in Old Havana are going up because next year is the 500th anniversary of Old Havana, which is a World Heritage Site, and there's uh, enormous um, restoration and, and construction still going on in Old Havana. Can you envisage 
a time when the sanctions will be lifted? Uh, yes, well, you know, but uh, it's it's been there for well over 50 years, getting on towards 60 years, and at different times in the past, US administrations have talked about doing it. Uh, it's got to go through the Congress, but the President can't do this, as Obama showed. And the US Congress is pretty crazy. I mean, look what they did with Russia. Trump didn't even want sanctions against Russia. He wanted to do, cut some sort of deals. The sanctions against Russia, based on, in my view, ludicrous claims that they'd interfered in the US election, there were very few dissenters. Uh, I think about 10 abstentions in Congress against that. So there's an enormous cross-party U.S. exceptionalist idea that they can impose sanctions against everyone in the world. You know, they've got sanctions against two dozen countries and it affects third parties very strongly. The Europeans are now being affected by Trump's sanctions. So it's very uncertain. In the past, they said when the Castros are gone and when this happens, when that happens, it's just a shifting cease. When the U.S. got out of Angola, when the U.S. got out of Africa, that was the, the mantra in the 80s, you know, so... The U.S. is such an unpredictable empire in decline, lashing out with different aggressive moves. Look at the economic war against Iran and Russia and trying to block Europe doing business with Russia. So those things are very uncertain, and the Cubans have come to accept that as as hugely uncertain. Can I ask you, Tim, to focus for a couple more minutes on Brazil? We've seen the impact on Cuba with the, the doctors leaving. What do you believe the impact of Brazil will be on both Venezuela and Cuba, the impact of the new government in Brazil? It's very important, and there was a huge debate, effort, campaign across the whole of Latin America against this current candidate. Clearly, uh, this extreme right-wing candidate, they're calling him Brazil's Trump, has got in because of disillusionment with the party system. So the Workers' Party obviously has problems. Even though Lula, who's currently in jail, remains the most popular president they've ever had, and had he run, uh, had he run for president, he would have won. But clearly, there there is great dissatisfaction with the with the party system. So there's a huge struggle to be had in Brazil about this. I mean, if this man is going to destroy a public health infrastructure that Lula and Dilma put in place, and that's at the root of the popularity of Workers' Party leaders like Lula, um, all of the social programs they did to make serious inroads into the enormous poverty that exists in Brazil. There's going to be a social reaction there, and there's going to be a struggle there. Uh, It does affect Venezuela, you're right. One thing I might mention about Cuba is that this is a commercial impact, an economic impact on Cuba to the the collapse of this doctor's program because Cuba's main export industry is medical services, whether in Cuba or in in those sorts of programs. But what's just happened in recent days is the new left-wing president in Mexico, uh, Lopez Obrador, is agreeing to take some of those uh, doctors, perhaps up to 3,000 of those outpatient doctors, into Mexico, which has a very similar problem dominated by a private doctor sector, very weak public health um, sector in certain areas, still depending on private health insurance, like the U.S. model, basically. So AMLO, the Lopez Obrador, the, the new president, has been talking with um, Miguel uh, Diaz-Canel, and the, the, apparently a number of those Cuban doctors are going to be diverted from Brazil to Mexico. So you see there's, there's swings and roundabouts in the Latin alliances. 
I'll just finish with um, the death of George W. Bush. Could I have your comments on this man? I suppose, you know, the George W. Bush legacy is thought of a lot in terms of the Gulf War and the manipulations he made to get involved in that first war on Iraq and the massacre of the retreating Iraqi soldiers. But in Latin America, people will remember, and in Cuba they'll remember, that George Bush began as a CIA operative in Florida at the time when the Miami Mafia and the CIA were conspiring against Cuba at a time when JFK was assassinated and the Mafia was suspected of involvement. And so his involvement and the Bush family's involvement in the, the dirty politics against Latin America is, is remembered very strongly in Cuba too. Okay, Tim, thanks for that. Thanks for that, Jan. Thanks. And a big thank you to Dr Tim Anderson. I'd like to finish with a small article from Talisur in English relating to Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro, the greatest revolutionary and socialist Latin America leader of all times, died a day like today, November the 25th, 2016. He inspired many people to care about others who have less, to place humanity above greed and not to fear to fight those who are more powerful. And he did this for more than 50 years, not only leading the Cuban Revolution, but also having the strength of character to maintain its purpose. His actions, always true to his words, earned Fidel Castro the respect and admiration of millions throughout the world. One of the great achievements of Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution is to have created a system of social protection that is unanimously considered as the example to be followed for the nations of the third world, universalising access to health, education, culture, housing, safety, sport and recreation. A literacy rate of more than 99%. Cuban students have the best academic results in Latin America in all subjects. Cuba devotes about 14% of its budget to education. All careers are universal and free for all Cubans. Life expectancy is about 80 years. The infant mortality rate is 4.6 per thousand. It is the only country in Latin America and the third world that has eradicated child malnutrition. It is the first country in the world to have eliminated mother-to-child transmission of the AIDS virus. There's the good part of the program, a bit of celebration of the life and times of Fidel Castro and what he achieved in his lifetime, which ended two years ago last week. That's all for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at four o'clock, but here's something else to cheer you up. Bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.